Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. This passage follows five short narratives that show conflict mounting between Jesus and the religious authorities. His theology was questioned because he forgave someone of their sin. His character was questioned because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. His religious devotion was questioned because he and his disciples didn't fast. His choice in disciples was questioned because they plucked grain on the Sabbath. And his respect for the Sabbath and Jewish tradition in general was questioned because he healed a man on the Sabbath right there in front of them, in the synagogue of all places. These conflicts reveal that Jesus believed himself to have the authority of God. Our task as readers of the gospel is to determine why. Is it because he's a blasphemer? Is he out of his mind? Is he the Messiah? Is he God? It's clear from the gospel account that he acted as if he was God. First of all, he forgave a man's sin without offering any sacrifice, but by simply speaking. But sin is a grievance between God and man. And so by declaring the man's sin to be forgiven, Jesus spoke as if he was God. And then we saw that just as he was not defiled by touching a leper, he did not consider himself defiled by the company of tax collectors and sinners he ate with. He believed himself to be holy and incorruptible like God. And he declared himself to be the bridegroom of the people of God, which parallels the imagery of God as Israel's husband. If he was not the Messiah, then he wasn't very humble. Then he declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. But God created the Sabbath. He embedded it into his creation. How could any man be Lord of the Sabbath? Lastly, he used his authority over the Sabbath to do good by speaking a word of healing to a man. And the Lord granted power to his words. With each episode, conflict builds. At first, the religious leaders question Jesus in their head. Then they speak their concerns out loud. But then after the last one, they began to actively plot his death. With irony, they planned evil on the Sabbath because Jesus did what was good. It's clear that Jesus is like new wine. He cannot be put in the old wineskins of Jewish tradition. And the religious leaders recognize that he's undermining their authority and power. They do not want Jesus to burst their old wineskins. They want to get rid of him. The plot against his life has caused Jesus to withdraw once again from Capernaum. But this time he can no longer escape the crowds. Our passage today opens with him at the Sea of Galilee, the place where he had called several of his disciples. It seems that the concerns of the religious leaders are not the concerns of the laity. There's a great crowd following Jesus, a diverse crowd, 
both geographically and ethnically. We're told that he had followers from the predominantly Jewish areas nearby of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. He had followers from the ethnically mixed regions 120 miles to the south in Idumea and beyond the Jordan. And he had followers from the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon, located 50 miles to the north. A nearly 200-mile radius of followers, both Jew and Gentile, crowded around him. This is a much larger following than John the Baptist had. John's followers were from Jerusalem and Judea. The size of the crowd is impressive, but not the faith or devotion of the crowd. Bigger isn't always better. The great crowd didn't follow him because they wanted to hear his message about the kingdom of God. They pressed upon him to be healed of their diseases. They wanted physical healing, not spiritual healing. To them, Jesus was a miracle worker and nothing more. Jesus was hindered and and jostled by the crowds. They were pushing and pulling, trying to force their way to Jesus. He recognized the danger that he was in and had his disciples secure him a boat for him to safely teach from, lest the crowd crush him. It's clear that the concerns of the crowd for their own health and well-being exceeded their concern for the health and well-being of Jesus. Rather than following him as disciples and learning from him, they wanted to take something from him. They didn't want to speak to him. They wanted to touch him, to be healed. It's as if they had a superstitious or magical view of Jesus. Though they were enamored by him like a celebrity, they were, in effect, dehumanizing him, which is not uncommon today. And people often think of Jesus as a means to becoming happy, wealthy, and wise, like a cosmic Santa Claus, infinitely benevolent. And of course, Jesus certainly has the power to heal, but spiritual healing is of far greater importance than physical healing. By spiritual healing, I mean that Jesus can repair our relationship with God, which has been marred by sin, so that through Jesus, we can enjoy God's blessing and favor rather than the judgment we deserve. This is of eternal significance and worth. A physical healing, on the other hand, is temporary. And since death is inevitable, no physical healing is sufficient for eternity. But the crowds wanted the lesser thing. They failed to understand who Jesus is, and yet the very demons in their midst know exactly who Jesus is. And whenever they saw Jesus, they fell down before him. They cried out, you are the son of God. But the demons' knowledge of Jesus is not a positive expression of faith. They hate him. They want nothing to do with him. It's not enough for us to believe in God either. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. God exists whether you believe in him or not. The important thing is your relationship with him. Are you reconciled to God through faith in Jesus or not? It's not enough to know about him. You must trust him. 
Well, Jesus had no difficulty exercising authority over the demons. Though they weren't joyfully obedient, they were compelled to obedience. You know, Jesus kicked them out of the people they tormented, and he ordered them to stay silent about his true identity. And Jesus didn't want the crowd of people who were already hindering him to have even more reason to prevent him from his mission. If they believed him to be the son of God, they wouldn't have hesitated to take up arms and fight for Jesus so that he could lead them to victory over the Romans and reinaugurate the Davidic kingdom. But Jesus was to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, despised and rejected by the ones he came to save. He was to complete his mission given to him by God, not grant the wishes and desires of the people. Now, from a worldly point of view, the crowds along the sea might look like success, but it's what took place on the mountain that's of far greater importance. Though the actual setting is the western hills overlooking the Sea of Galilee, Mark calls it a mountain because mountains are places with a lot of significance in the Old Testament. God's covenant with Abraham and with Moses and his giving of the Ten Commandments all occurred on a mountain. Mountains are sites of revelation. You know, long before humans learned how to fly with airplanes, mountains were as high up as you could get. And so it made sense that the mountains were the meeting place between heaven and earth. On the mountain, Jesus had fellowship with his true followers, the people whom he desired to be up there with him, the people he called. This reflects the language of Isaiah 43, our Old Testament reading, where the Lord is the one who chooses his servants and appoints them to be witnesses. These are people set apart from the crowd. And it was there on the mountain that he appointed some of his disciples to a special office. Now, we don't know how many disciples he had at this point, but he commissioned 12 of them to be apostles, which means sent ones. The ESV says that he appointed 12, but the Greek word that Mark used means to make. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. Here, Jesus made 12. They are a new creation. And perhaps the designation of a name for them, the apostles, is related to the creation theme because God gave Adam authority to name the animals. The right to name belongs to a superior, a superior who has the authority to determine the essence and purpose of the thing named. The name that Jesus gave the 12 reflects the special task which they've been set apart for and called to. There are three dimensions to being an apostle. Look again at verse 14. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So first of all, there's the relational dimension. They are to be with Jesus, following him, and learning from him. Then there's the verbal dimension there to be sent out from Jesus to preach. But what are they to preach? Well, not what they think and feel, 
but what they've seen and heard from being in relationship with Jesus. They're to go forth and tell people the story of Jesus. And later in Mark's gospel, they will be sent out. But until that moment, they have much more to learn by being in relationship with Jesus. The third dimension to their call involves the authority they're given to steward. They will be able to act in his name by casting out demons and opposing evil. Now, some of the men named as apostles are people we've been told about before. Jesus called Simon, Andrew, James, and John while they were fishing. And he called Levi, who's likely Matthew, while he was sitting at the tax booth. The first three named Peter, James, and John seem to be the inner circle of his disciples. They're present at all the significant moments in his ministry. The book of Acts spends several chapters talking about Peter, and we have two letters written by him in the New Testament. Also, it is from Peter that Mark received his information to write this gospel account, which might be a factor in why Peter plays such a prominent role. They were his memories, after all. But as important as the apostles were to the early church, some of them remain obscure. And we know nothing about Thaddeus other than that his name is on the list. Of course, if the Bible were to tell us everything about every person, it'd be endlessly long, and the main message of the Bible would be harder to get across. But there's a beautiful thing to consider about the inclusion of obscure people. It reminds us that the church is indebted to the labor of many people who will never be famous. Countless people have served the church in obscurity. They've loved people and preached the gospel faithfully and have died and gone on to glory and will never know their name on this side of eternity. But God used them. And we benefit from their work, even if we don't recognize it. The work of the individual Christian isn't as important as the work of the church. Responsibility falls on the church, not the individual. And so more important than an individual profile of each apostle is their corporate identity. The number 12 recalls the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is constituting a new 12 to lead God's people. Having written this account some 30 years after Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus and died, it may have been tempting for Mark to leave his name out of the list. But he's being historical and testifying to the fact that even the Christian fellowship recruited and trained by Jesus was not a perfect society. And so we shouldn't expect the church to be made up of perfect people. Even more so, we shouldn't be surprised when there are people among us, even on our membership roles, who are not truly followers of Jesus. We cannot judge the heart as God can, we can only hear a profession of faith and decide imperfectly whether it reflects true faith. That doesn't mean you know, we should treat others with suspicion. Judas was a minority in the inner fellowship of Jesus. We should regard others in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ 
and hold people accountable to God's word with love. Well, this passage, it describes two very different groups of people. Along the sea are enthusiastic crowds and admirers of Jesus. They push and crowd their way to Jesus, oblivious to the theological concerns of the religious authorities, because they're not coming to him to learn from him about the kingdom of God or to serve him, but to use him for healing. And so down below, you have the fans of Jesus. But on the mountain were the followers of Jesus. And among them, some were appointed to a special task, there to be apprentices of Jesus, learning from him so that they can be sent out in his authority to do what he does. But not all of his followers are called to this special task. Not all disciples today are called to be pastors, elders, deacons, or missionaries. Though vocational ministry is a wonderful calling, it's not the calling of every Christian. The other followers on the mountain belong to Jesus just as much as the apostles. This passage gives you the opportunity to consider where you fit. Are you among the enthusiastic admirers of Jesus along the sea, looking to gain from Jesus? Or are you among the disciples on the mountain, following Jesus and willing to serve him? The difference is what lies at the center of your life. Is it you or is it God? What drives your every decision? Is it you or God? The call to discipleship is about giving up control over your life and putting the Lord at the center of your life. And if you do that, you will find less cause for anxiety and fear because God will take care of you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 